How's it going? Um, Rafe here again. Um, today, I've got with me a, a really interesting discussion, maybe a less of like a lubricant sort of technical discussion today, but still technical. Um, we're going to be talking sales and sales processes and the way that sales has changed over the, the past few years. So this is something that's affecting all industries, but obviously, uh, we're going to be talking about it, uh, you know, lubricant specific. And today I have with me Steve Knapp. Um, now he has a wealth of experience um, going back to his days at Shell, where he um, worked a lot in their sort of sales teams and uh, really kind of uh, changed the way that they did sales. Um, so um, really excited to get his take on sort of modern sales. Um, he's actually just written a book, um, which I have read and was absolutely fantastic. And I'll definitely give a shout out for that. Um, uh, so um, I'd encourage everyone to go through it. We're going to be talking about some of the concepts uh, today, um, but I, I thought it's a fantastic primer on how sales has has really changed and how um, you know modern lubricants organizations can can kind of change their sales process and sales culture to, to better fit, I guess, the modern buying experience. So um, super excited about that, uh, Steve. Welcome. Hey, thanks. Great to be here, and uh, yeah. I think you've outlined a very interesting topic right there. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. So um, straight off the bat, I'm going to ask you um, kind of like a, a scoring question just so we can get a feel for where the industry's at. So if you had to score the lubricants industry, um, now I, I, it runs the gamut of experiences, right? But but generally on its sales culture, um, you know, what would you give it out of a 10? Wow, you start with it. You start with a quite provocative question there. Yeah. Um, the question itself interests me because you say sales culture are not all culture. So I think that's interesting. There is a, there is a distinction because I, because I would probably say organizational cultures are stronger than sales cultures in yeah, I think that's the fair. space. Yeah. Um, so the frame of answering your question is around the sales part and when we think of that backdrop of it being very traditional, very traditional, um, we ask ourselves, and we'll get into this a bit more, are they digital savvy? You know, does that, does that really play out in their sales culture? And we start to think about, um, you know, the engineering solutions, not selling solutions, right? So I would say the sales culture is on the lower end of the scale. And if I was to give it a number, I would probably say three, three out of 10. How's that for a, for a, for a, for a first stab? <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Okay. So that, that's good. Cause that gives us kind of like a, a bit of a benchmark. Um, yeah. and it also gives us room to grow as well. <laughs> um, how, have you, let, let's say, are there, are there outliers though? And we, we don't want to point out, yeah. you know, the bad stuff, but, but have you seen examples of excellent sales cultures in your time? I, I have, um, I would say it's pockets. I would say it's pockets. I mean, we're talking about a global, a global, um, uh, reach here. And of course we have different levels of evolution. You know, some are far clearer about how their buyers buy. Some are more set in tradition. You know, if you start you, your, your market, as an example, incredible value-based sales, um, uh, approaches out in Australia. So I think there's, I think there are good sales cultures. I'd probably say. There are good leaders, um, but sales leaders less so. And I think, I think that's what probably makes 
the sales culture work or not. Some of the challenges I see within the sales leader space is it's a, it, it's a segment that promotes over time. Mm. And it's a segment where the best seller is often favored for the promotion. And I think what that does is actually starts to stifle cultural growth because we're, we're moving people in the likeness of ourselves and we're not, we're not challenging the change that probably needs to take place. I mean, thinking about putting the customer first, that's one way I'd probably measure the sales cultures that are great, where the customer is intrinsically first in the thinking. And the challenge I put into the lubricant space is just think about your external messaging. Is it about the size and scale and new investments, or is it about the value you add to those niche customers in that particular application? And it's not talking about your formula. It's talking about them as customers. And I think when we start to see a sales culture really clear and evident is when we are talking to the customer directly in a language that is a language that, they, that really resonates with them. So I've seen examples, but I think, again, there is just way to go. Yeah, yeah. So something that you, just to back up to something you said and something you brought up in the book as well is that idea of um, promoting your best salespeople into leadership positions, often, you know, sales leadership or sales management positions. And that not necessarily being a good fit because, you know, your skill as a salesperson doesn't necessarily translate to being a good manager. Right? And I think many of us have, have probably experienced that at some point in our lives um, working for, someone who got promoted into that, that position. Um, so how, how do you then, let's say, how do you make sure that your top of the line salespeople are still feeling valued for their contribution without that promotion, that, that kind of carrot to egg them on? Because, you, you know, I talked about this in a little bit in the last podcast with James Morehouse about yeah. talent retention. You know, and, and that's something that we really struggle with in our industry. How do you retain your, your best salespeople when you don't have that capacity to promote them into another position? I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's a great question because talent needs as much attention as poor performance. But, but if you was to think about the focus of time, it's probably more dedicated to trying to improve performance of a few and recognize the contribution of, of the success. So I think that's one part. Mm. Are we, are we focusing equally and fairly on everybody in the team or is there a disparity around poorer performance? Because stars still need the love, the care, the attention. If you think about, if you think about the space of B2B sales, not lubricants, but B2B sales, I think, I think the last I read, it's about 18 months is the average tenure of a salesperson. So it's suggesting that there is a real lack of leadership to retain, to retain staff. So that could be that chasing the shiny big commission somewhere else. It could be that the leaders are not developing them. So I think there's a whole, there's a whole thing about how do you keep 
the stars. I think one piece, one piece that starts to really play out though, is about that personalization of the relationship, the trust, building, building that trust. Because what motivates a baby boomer is a very different motivation to a millennial. I carry out some mentoring and a star performer in a business is petrified. They're about to be offered the sales manager's job. They, they don't want all of the trappings that comes with a little bit more money and maybe a nicer car. They've got different values. They want freedom. They want, they want a lifestyle that gives them flexibility. And I think leaders in businesses have got to personalize how they motivate people. They've really got to understand that because the cooker cut, the cookie cutter approach of leadership that happened when I was, when I was at work, it was all about the next job. It was all about more money. It was all about, you know, but that's just not what's driving star performance now. And therefore, if you create an environment where people feel that they have this unique environment that's tailored for them, and that might sound bizarre to some people listening to this, mm. but you have to treat employees very differently now than you did previously. And I think that all starts to play out in retaining great talent. And you said you spoke about that in the previous pod, yeah. but, but I think, I think, you know, talent still needs to be able to, you know, deliver in that sales space. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have the skills to be a leader or a manager. And we just have to be very mindful that they are different. They are different skills. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and all those kind of, um, let's say intrinsic rewards that, that are not necessarily salary or, or job title or position or things like that. I, I feel like that's accelerated as a result of the pandemic too, right? People are placing much 100%. higher value on, you know, working from home and flexibility and, and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, there's only so much that flexibility can stretch in the sales game too, right? Because um, at the same time, you know, face-to-face -face interaction, there is something to that. I, I don't think it, it necessarily will ever replace, be replaced by things like, you know, Zoom and, and things like that. Uh, no, it, it won't be, yeah. but I think the sales process needs yes. to recognize that people have that preference. Yep. People have a preference to consume content. People have a preference to self-select. And whilst I agree, face-to-face -face sales will always be the case. I think it will come later in the sales, uh, sales process. Mm. And I think it will become at particular steps. Yeah. Yeah. In for the sure. buyer's buying journey. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get to, um, sort of like the, the content driven approach and, and that a little bit later. Okay. Um, I just wanted to also ask a little bit about, you know, building this sales culture. So the way that you talk about it in the book is very much on kind of having the entire organization, uh, you know, really aligned towards sales. So it's not just about having, you know, sufficient KPIs for your sales staff. It's also, um, let's say, for example, how do you get the marketing uh, invested in sales? How do you get accounts payable to recognize yeah. that their job is a key part of the customer experience? You know, even like logistics and supply chain have to recognize that they are customer facing organizations. Now, typically in a, in a sales organization, those uh, job functions don't have sales KPIs. They're not necessarily rewarded, uh, you know, monetarily or otherwise uh, for hitting sales targets. 
So when you start to build this sales culture and everything starts to align towards sales and it feels like all the rewards are accruing to this very small bunch of people at the top, how do you keep everyone else motivated and how do you keep them invested in the process? Yeah. I mean, it really is a, a fundamental, should be a fundamental goal of leadership in, 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 in these businesses to have all staff connected to the bottom line. Hmm. So there's a question. Do you, do you know the tasks that you perform, how they contribute to revenue? And that's an awkward question sometimes to the people who are asking people to do the tasks, because I, the answer might be, I'm not sure. Now I know there are certain tasks we just can't get rid of because that makes a business run, but I bet you there are a lot of things that we do that we haven't taken the time to consider how does that connect to the bottom line? And what I've found is if we take the time to understand what the functional teams do and how it connects to the customer experience, which ultimately connects to sales, they feel far more invested. And from that position, you can start to create visibility on performance because what I'm doing contributes to the bottom line. I can create visibility. So we can start to recognize success of people in functions, recognizing them for doing their job well, going over and above. Maybe even then we can start considering them for president's clubs or, you know, awards, you know, which maybe been the, the gift of salespeople. But so this is a, this is a fundamental piece before you even think about KPIs. But if we get clear on the tasks that people do and how they hit the bottom line, contribute to the bottom line, we can start to find where those connecting points of KPIs, KPIs are. It's, so, it's, it's really interesting you say that because uh, I think there is so much, you know, my, my question was probably a leading question in, in uh, I, was, I was talking about KPIs and things like that, but without recognizing that fundamentally, I would say 99% of people just want to do their job well. Uh, yeah. And if you can explain to them how to do their job better, most of the time they'll they'll do it and and it's funny because you know just to talk a little bit on the technical side i i've taken the same approach with oil analysis that let's say for example the fitter or the turner who's often taking the oil samples often they don't take much care not not because they don't they don't care about the job but because no one has ever told them how important that job is right for them to take a clean sample they don't yeah. often understand the the downstream effects of how clean data means, uh, you know, better analytics means better decision making. Potentially means saving millions and millions of dollars on on yeah. assets, you know, further down the line. And once you explain it to them, they're totally on board. Like no one wants yeah. to do a bad job. Yeah. Well, nobody wants to do a bad job. And and you're right. So connecting to what I do, why I do it, and how it contributes, and it all feeds into sales culture, right? Because if we get this rubber, everybody knows that they play a part in sales. Mm. And, and I think this is where all culture and sales culture, your very first question starts to manifest. If we get clear about this, everybody knows what they're doing when they go to work and why they're doing it. 
And only then do we start to think about KPIs. You know, uh, sales forecasting can help supply chain. Brilliant. So what's the commonality in the KPI? How do we join these teams together? Overdues, you mentioned, credit days. And so we join people together. It's finding these connecting points in our KPIs is when you start to get the sales culture coming through because the language becomes one that's consistent, working together and not actually pulling, pulling in different ways. The classical sales and marketing piece, you know, how do you make sure sales and marketing work together? Well, there's, there's a number of ways we can, we can do that, but, um, yeah, it's, it, it's a real, it's a real, it's a real question that I think organizations must answer. How do we involve, connect to all of the functions, all of the supporting teams, so we can really drive a sales culture through our business to ultimately win more sales? Yeah, cool. Um, so I really liked, uh, you know, I mean, going back to the sort of the KPI discussion, I guess, um, yeah. because the ones who are probably most heavily influenced are often the sales staff because, you know, naturally it's often tied to commissions and things like that. Um, one of the things that you kind of identified in, in the book is, is talking about maybe measuring for activity as opposed to outcomes. And that very much felt like, maybe this is me reading between the lines, but it very much felt like activity is something that's within your control. So you can control, for example, how many sales calls you make per day. Um, there are extrinsic factors that mean that the end result may not be something that you have control over. Yep. So it's kind of makes more sense to have KPIs that are focused on what you can control. And that activity combined with sales leadership should therefore eventually lead to success. So what are some of the better KPIs that you've seen uh, for, for sales staff? Wow, here's a silver bullet here. <laughs> I, I must say, I must say within my, within my time at, uh, at Shell, I had 23 years there. And I think I was personally responsible for changing the KPI scheme three or four times in, in, a, in you know, it's, it's one of those things that we're forever chasing the tail of. What, yeah. it, what is the right, what is the right combination? Um, I think I, this whole space of KPIs, we can't move away from the fact that sales are measured and paid on performance. So however we, however we talk about measurements and KPIs, there is a cause and effect, but I, but I think there's got to be more to answer your question, a more subtle way or a more empowering way to help sellers achieve the goals of the organization. So at the first line, absolutely, there are primary KPIs. These are the numbers. These are the measures. These yeah. are the things that feed into the shareholder. We can't, we can't, we can't get away yeah. from those, nor should we. So results. Results. Yeah. It has to be there. But I think it's weighted with what I call the secondary targets. And, and these are two things. These are behaviors. And these are delivering on expectations. So behaviors. Am I a complete ass that messes up the whole harmony of the organization just to get a deal through? Everybody in the office really doesn't like me, mm. yet I'm making my numbers. Somewhere in secondary targets, a weighted position, that behavior has got to be 
penalized if it's driving a negative piece. So I think behaviors becomes really important, but let's think about how we couch that more positively. We set that up in something of what I would call sales expectations. And this is being very clear about what it is we expect from you in your job. Maybe that's the number of sales calls. Maybe that's the waiting on range selling. Maybe that's, um, a, a new product launches. Maybe that's campaign activities, something that is sets a clear standard where I can measure you, um, on, on your, on, on performance, but these are things that actually contribute to how you get to the number, not the number itself. And I think therefore, as a sales leader, conversations that are around behaviors and expectations are much more helpful than conversations that are about, are you going to make the number? Are you going to make the number? Are yeah. you going to make the number? So KPIs for me, let's focus on those secondary ones, behavioral, behavioral goals, behavioral and expectations. Yeah, that's really cool. That's a really, uh, interesting way to look at it. Hmm. All right. Well, you've given me uh, something to think about. That's for sure. Um, maybe if we get on to the piece about, you know, the other sort of big theme of the book I found was about the way that the sales process has changed. So for me, the book was kind of split up into two, you know, major themes. One was building a sales culture. And then um, how does that manifest in a new sales process to meet new buyers that are out there? And if I can kind of quote some of the headlines, it's, it's sort of what 59% of B2B buyers, which I thought was interesting, are now millennials. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, millennial demographic has started to be basically promoted into decision-making positions. Yep. Um, let's call it that. 44% of those, so 44% of the 59% uh, would prefer to have no interaction at all with sales staff um, and would prefer to do their own research. Now, uh, this is just my take on it. Again, this is anecdotal. This is not backed by any data or science in any way. But, uh, you know, I know the experience of a lot of millennials that seems to carry over from the consumer market, right? Where people are now doing a lot more research online when they make a purchase, uh, you know, shopping online, often people won't even go to a physical store and they're basically taking that purchasing behavior across to the B2B market, um, whether that's because they feel they are um, better at doing their own research or they want to kind of be the own, their own filter. Uh, there's a few reasons for it, but I guess it makes sense that that's happened. Um, so the, the question that I have for you is that it sounds like a lot of the interaction is is basically moving up the traditional sales funnel, right? So that rather than us going to the customer, showing all the benefits that we can, you know, can or giving a potential price and things like that, they are actually coming to us potentially having done a whole bunch of research. So I guess where I'm getting at is it sounds like in that instance, sales and marketing have kind of merged, like marketing is your sales. Um, if the interaction is all at arc, arm's length, at what point do those two functions just become one? 
and I think this is a fundamental question for your listeners to grab hold of. Um, you can, we can use big, big phrases like paradigm shifts, but I think what's happened is the pandemic has probably accelerated what was happening anyway. Yeah. I mean, those of us that have been in the industry for years, we've known that buyers have wanted to get rid of us. They see us as expense. They see us as a cost. And the more and more they could self-serve, they tried to do that, didn't they? Tenders, reverse auction, all the terrible stuff that goes on that we don't really want to get involved with because we want that face-to-face -face interaction where we can add value. But our buyer has ultimately won the game. And they've won the game by telling us at the early stages of the sales process, suspecting and prospecting, that I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to decide when I'm going to engage with you. So that does me, Rafe, you're right, that the modern seller is actually a marketeer in, in essence as well, because a modern seller now needs to nurture a prospect, suspect, while they're in what I call the holding pattern. And that's where they might use their digital content. You know, the stats that you gave, absolutely. There's another one for you. 80% of B2B sales interactions between suppliers and buyers will occur on digital channels by 2025. Now, reflect, where are you as a listener with that, with that inevitability? Your buyer has decided this is how they're going to buy. A seller now needs to be as much a marketeer at this early phase by feeding content as, as, as your marketing, you might think your marketing department does. And we have to recognize that a buyer buys in four phases, an unaware phase. So they don't know who you are. They don't know who you are. The next phase is aware. Your job as a seller in a modern environment is to take people who are unaware of you and make them aware. That, that is a job that was marketing. That was what marketing did. Mm. Now we have gifts, we have LinkedIn, we have podcasts, we have, we have blogs, we have all sorts of vehicles that enables us to talk to our ideal clients. Yet so many sellers in the lubricant space do not take this opportunity to stand out and get recognized. So it's a fundamental challenge, question, opportunity, however you want to frame it. We've got to recognize the buyer's buying journey, and we've got to recognize that that S&P phase of a sales process, we have to be far more active as a seller with our marketing content. Absolutely key point in a modern sales toolkit. That's, that's really interesting. So maybe the one question I've got about that would be, um, I think that part of the reticence of um, a lot of salespeople to jump on a lot of these digital tools, let's say LinkedIn, for example, is that there is a risk that you are seen as um, speaking on behalf of the company that you represent, right? Mm. And that has always kind of been the domain of the marketing function. So they carefully craft a message depending on the size of the organization, maybe it has to go through public relations, public and government affairs, you know, get all the sign-offs and whatnot. 
what up before it goes out to the public. And as a salesperson, you feel that if I if I do that and I put myself out in the public, um, I'm basically putting a target on myself, both internally if I say something wrong, uh, but also externally, right, with uh, with my potential buyers. So, do you have any recommendations for people who are in that position? What, what should they do? So, so I, I mean, so again, I, rec- I recognize that. I recognize some of the limitations. Uh, I recognize some of the caution that people would potentially, um, but, but that caution too often leads to no action. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think that's, that's the piece I'm trying to challenge here. It, it's the no action. I mean, let me just give you one simple example. How many people who are active on LinkedIn take the company latest blog or article and simply share it into their feed? with no personalization. There's no risk in saying, this is a really good article. This point really resonated with me and I thought you might like it. Instantly a far more personal piece of content. Now you could take it to another level. You could actually share in a private message that article with an individual that happens to be a prospect or a suspect. Based on our conversation of two months ago, I thought you might like this. Is it time we spoke again? People just aren't using the platforms because there's this fear that I have to be a celebrity. I have to be somebody that stands for something confrontational. Actually, it's not about that. We call this no like trust in our training. It's about being consistent. It's about being consistent. So your ideal clients your prospects and suspects come to almost anticipate your answer. And if you get to that point where they're expecting you to respond like that, when they think of buying what you sell, you're the only place they're going to go to. So I think it's about make, let's get people to action. I do get the risk Rafe that you described. But I'm not talking about putting messages out that are politically charged or, you know, ecologically charged stuff that actually connects to your ideal client, your prospects. I thought of you powerful, powerful, small statements. Yeah. That, I mean, the the approach that you just described is, is very simple and I, I can see it humanizing some of these bigger companies too, right? Who just put out blog posts and articles and they sort of seem to go into the ether. But if you can take that and personalize it for, for your audience, I can see, yeah, I mean, that, yeah. that, would, be, that would be valuable and, and, and sort of powerful as well. Um, one of the things that you did talk about, let's say in this generational divide where, where millennial buyers are starting to become more common is the way that buyers are meeting online we need to meet buyers where they are, right? Mm. So that's online. But the other thing that you mentioned was that the type of content that they're desiring is video form, <laughs> however, not webinars. Um, and that was maybe a little bit surprising to me only because of the prevalence of webinars at the moment, <laughs> right? Everyone is doing a webinar right now. Um, 
and I mean, you could argue that everyone's also doing a podcast right now, like, like I'm doing. Um, so why is it that webinars are not as effective in, in terms of a video medium? And what do you think we should be doing in, in this space? I, I think this is, again, there are some great questions here. So when I think about this, 90% of buyers say that online content influences their purchasing decision, right? So we have to be producing content. The question about, the question about content, be it a webinar, be it video, be it a pod, be it a blog, it's about providing insight and not information. The reason that webinars are being turned off in buyers' minds is because they're just information. They're not insightful. They're not teaching them something that they can't find elsewhere. Remember, they want to self-serve. They've done this. So when I come to you, you've already told me this. Now you're telling me again. No, I've come to your webinar because I want something different. Now, back in the day, we'd keep all of our secrets until we went to that face-to-face -face meeting, wouldn't we? No, a buyer doesn't want that. 57% of a buyer's decision is made before they in invite you to speak with them. It's yours to lose. They've made their decision ultimately. So you must provide them insight and not information. And I think this is the space that we can really play in. You know, it's not about the trade secrets. Just teach me something. Teach me something that I didn't know before I came. So the long form webinar often leads to a buy my book, sign up to my course. And I think people have become a bit wary about that. So the other point I'd answer your question in is know where your content fits. So know where it fits in your sales process and your buyer's buying journey. See how the two things link up. Where do I provide personal, more one-to-one -one service? probably nearer the negotiation closing. Where do I provide webinars? Top of funnel, much broader. So mm. content for content's sake doesn't work. So that's how I would probably come around, around this one. Provide insight, whatever your content is, but know where your content fits in your buyer's journey and your sales process. And not many companies have really worked that through. The last point is where do you send them next, right? So I've listened to your webinar, what's next? And that's often missed. So we, we missed the opportunity to follow up. If I joined your webinar, I'm kind of interested. So you should follow up. So there's a few things here that goes on around, around content and video and the whole space. Yeah, that's awesome. And, uh. You know, I think that's that's probably a really good place to end it because I feel like we can end on a hopeful note in that what you've described there is that if we can just provide insight, you know, that that's one of the keys to really unlocking a lot of the content that everyone's trying to drive. And for the lubricants business, I feel like that's a huge opportunity for us because uh, one of the things that I'm, you know, feel strongly about, especially with this channel and the YouTube channel is that our buyers, that is industry, know so little about what we do and the value that we can bring. So theoretically, 
providing them insights about our business should be really easy. <laughs> There's lots that they don't know about us. So um, I, I think that we kind of end on a hopeful note because uh, I think that, that that means that there's a, a lot of ground that, that, that we can make. So, um, hey, Steve, you know, thank you so much for the insight uh, that you've brought here today. Um, I will give a shout out the book. I'm, I'm one of those heathens that reads uh, Kindle, Kindle versions, right? So uh, I it was Modern Sales Leadership. Uh, it is a fantastic read. Um, I, to be honest, I got through it uh, within a day. Um, it, was a, it was a really good read, even though I'm not in a big sales organization. I'm just doing this myself. Um, I thought it had, you know, a lot of insight about like sales culture, as well as some new sales processes for a, for a modern age as well. And as we're seeing so many transitions in our business on the technology side, the, the sales process is also changing a lot. So uh, Steve, really appreciate your insight. Uh, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And I, I hope, um, I hope people got something from that. Awesome. All right. Easy as pie. <laughs>